Please read with me from Exodus chapter 32, 1 through 35. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them out of the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham. Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain. With the two tablets, of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, 
You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Well, on and off for the past year and a half, we've been studying together as a church family the book of Exodus, the account written by Moses concerning the deliverance of Israel from slavery to Egypt around the 1400s BC. So after 400 years of bondage, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and sent Moses, his deliverer, to rescue his people. Even though Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt, resisted, God unleashed ten strikes upon the land of Egypt, showing his power and his majesty. And then it all kind of came to a head. The exodus came to a head at the Red Sea as God led his people through the parted waters and then had those parted waters come back over and destroy the armies of Pharaoh. But even when reality set in after that exodus and Israel found themselves in the wilderness and and began to complain, they're hungry, they're thirsty, God kept providing. And he kept providing in miraculous ways. Manna from the sky, water from the rock. And then Israel, in chapter 19, came to Mount Sinai, where they will stay till chapter 40. And they met God. 
there, God, Yahweh, his personal name, showing his self-existent nature, revealed himself to his people on the mountain, giving them his law, making them his people through covenant. And over the past seven chapters that we've looked at, chapters 25 through 31, he has instructed Moses how to make him a holy tent. So his presence can dwell with and meet with his people. Really, Exodus has been one amazing feat of grace after another. God has brought his people this far. The covenant has been affirmed, and now the tabernacle will be built. The trajectory is pointing up. But then, chapter 32. And we see what has been going on during those 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was up on Sinai, what has been going on with the people on the plain below. And remember the instructions. We looked at this several weeks. Remember the instructions regarding the tabernacle from Yahweh were meant to picture the Garden of Eden, right? Coming in from the east, just like the the entrance to the Garden of Eden was from the east. Pictures of cherubim on the curtains of the tabernacle, just like there was a cherubim guarding the entrance to Eden. If Eden had been the last place where God had dwelt that way with his people in peace, the tabernacle was meant to be kind of a a new Eden, bringing in his people into his presence. Last week we saw kind of over the course of chapters 25 through 31, there had been seven times where the Lord had said something to Moses. And it says, and the Lord said, kind of showing us the seven days of creation. And then what had happened at the end of our passage last week, the Sabbath. A reminder that the workers and all of Israel must rest. But think about back to Genesis 1. What happened after those seven days of creation and that Sabbath in chapter 3? A fall. And that's what we see right here in Exodus 32. After these grand instructions for the creation of a new Eden, we see a fall into sin. So in the passage Aubrey just read for us, let's spend our time together this morning as a church focusing on four things, four people or groups of people. The four main characters in this drama, Israel, Aaron, Yahweh, and Moses. Israel, Aaron, Yahweh, and Moses. So first, let's look at Israel, the the people of Israel. So look there again in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 32. The people of Israel are impatient, right? It's been, it's been a long time since chapter 24 and Moses' ascent up the mountain to meet Yahweh and receive the tablets with his law. So back in chapter 24, they had pledged their obedience. Back in chapter 20, they had stood in grim awe and terror at the presence of the glory of God. But now it's been several weeks and they're waiting. When it's all been said and done, Moses will have spent over five weeks, five weeks of silence from their leader. And at this point, they're kind of fed up with it. So in verse one, they go to Aaron, whom Moses had left in charge, Moses' brother, and they say there, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron complies. He receives a donation of gold from the people, which is kind of ironic, considering that Yahweh, at the very same time, up on the mountain, is telling Moses 
that when he goes down, he's going to receive a collection of gold for the building of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Aaron's collection is for the construction of a, of a divine image, not for the tent for the divine. In verse 4, Aaron takes that gold, and, and like Bezalel and Aholiab last week that we saw in chapter 31, he, he doesn't fashion a tabernacle, but he fashions a golden calf. Now, this statue wasn't probably what you image in your mind as a calf, kind of a, a wobbly-legged, brand-new baby cow. Instead, this, this calf was probably a, a cow several years old, more a bull in your mind's eye than a calf. Uh, the image of a bull in that time and culture would have represented ideas like power and fertility. And so Aaron fashions this image, kind of this divine worshipful image in verse 4. And then in verse 4, the people proclaim the worth of that image and they call it their savior. Aaron, in verse 5, recognizes what they're doing, and he says, okay, um, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. That's a little confusing. I think as we read this, we, we wonder, is Israel trying to worship Yahweh in a new way, through an image, or are they trying to fashion a whole new god? I think it's probably the former, but regardless, what is clear is that they are engaging in outright idolatry. So even if they still want to worship the God of Sinai, the God who's revealed himself to them, they're going to worship him in their own way, not his. And that's idolatry. That's the breaking of what Yahweh had given them as the second commandment of the covenant. Never make an image of the invisible God. This golden bull is an idol. Now you can still find cultures throughout the world today that, that worship carved idols, like we read about earlier in Isaiah 44, like idols made of wood and, and gold. They'll build temples to house those idols and they'll worship and bring offerings to them. But although our culture in modern day America might scoff at those cultures, it's kind of, sort of archaic and outdated and on the wrong side of history, we have our fair share of idols as well. So listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism defines the act of idol worship. It says, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So idolatry is putting something above or equal to God, as worthy and deserving of our trust and our worship. So, church, I think we worship idols perhaps even more than the cultures that have, that have temples built to them, shrines built to them. Just, just think in your mind's eye. Think about what you go to for refuge in your fear. What you go to, first of all, for hope when you are despairing. Food, sexual pleasure, drink, distraction, perfect Christian performance, financial security, travel, gossip, your children's behavior, your parents' approval, 
a beautiful home, a secure retirement? Or the refuges that you retreat into when the rest of your life feels threatened? These aren't bad things, all of them. In fact, they're great things made by God. But like Israel, we exchange the giver for the gifts. All these things, perhaps you can come up with more in your mind even now. All these things are things that we can point to like Israel did and say, Loudon Valley Baptist Church, look, here are your gods. Sometimes our, our idols aren't that noticeable. It's interesting, isn't it? Look there in verse 6. Even though Israel starts to go out and play, which might have an a immoral connotation, look in the verses prior. They're still keeping the trappings of the religious worship they've experienced before. So in verse 5, they hold a feast, something Yahweh had told them to do back in chapter 13. In verse 6, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings like Moses had told them to do or had done himself back in chapter 24. Israel is doing all these same things. They have all the same things in place, yet they are not obeying Yahweh. They're rebelling against his law. They're breaking his covenant. They're worshiping a, a false representation of their own devising. I think that, that, that sobered me this past week, and I hope it, it sobers you as well. See, we can do a lot of religious, Christian-y things and still have hearts that are far from worshiping God. Far from obeying God. Far from loving God. But one of the themes throughout Exodus in our study in this book has been that we must worship Yahweh the way Yahweh tells us to worship him. When we worship the God of the Bible then without any thought to how he has instructed us to worship, without any thought to obedience to him, we're worshiping an, a God of our own invention. A God who's entirely different. Most likely the God of self. I found the way that the author Tim Chester puts this striking. He says, It is common in our culture for people to think they can decide what God is like. That is not so far removed from worshiping an idol we have made. We may not have a metal idol, but we have a mental idol. Do you really think the eternal God will suddenly change to become what you think he should be? Whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, you must understand every person is a worshiper. Every person has been made by God to worship. It's in our DNA. And sin is worship gone bad. Sin is worship taken from the only God and directed instead to the things the only God has made. Israel here is showing that they would rather have instant gratification than wait for their God. They need a God who's going to be working for them. And so they build this bull cast in gold. They leave the God who had just weeks before entered into covenant with them and was planning at that very moment to dwell with them in a tent alongside of them. 
It's, as one commentator calls it, akin to adultery on one's wedding night. Doesn't take much more than a month for God's people to desert his plan, to turn away from the one who had delivered them. That's the first character in this drama, Israel. The second character we come across is Aaron. So look, uh, scan ahead a little bit to verse 21. So this is after Moses has come down from the mountain, after he's talked to Yahweh. We'll get to that soon. And he confronts his brother Aaron, who he had left in charge. And he says, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron had messed up royally. And so Moses asks him, how did this happen, bro? And in yet another glimpse of Genesis, what does Aaron do? Passes the blame just like Adam in the garden. He said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For he said to me, make us gods, you shall go before us. And after this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Voila! Sorry, Moses, it just happened. Aaron has not addressed his heart, has he? How he has been controlled more by the fear of the people than the fear of Yahweh. Dear church, the, the fear of man, the worship of the approval of others, is one of the most prevalent, insidious idols of our heart. This idol is a liar. It promises us meaning and satisfaction in the praise of others and then leaves us shattered when we don't receive it. This idol causes us to serve our local church, to, to win the approval of those we respect, but it leaves us weary and discouraged when their comments just don't fill us up enough. This idol causes us to speak and to act and to kind of distort our behavior to win others' affirmation. But then says, oh, by the way, you need to lie and gossip in order to get that. This idol fools us into thinking we're actually trying to please others and serve others when at heart we're really trying to please and serve ourselves. This idol makes us think we are loving others when we're actually harming them. We see this in Aaron's behavior, leading the people entrusted to him into harm. See, when you worship someone else, friend, when you worship their approval of you, you are actually placing burdens on them that they can never bear and that will crush them. Worshiping someone is not loving someone. Only God can bear the weight of worship. Only God can be worshipped without being crushed. Worship God and then you will be able to love and lead others well. Aaron displays the sin of the fear of man and we see in, in really disturbing ways its consequences. Another thing we see in Aaron is his dismissal of his own sin, right? 
One author calls him a minimizer of sin. It's exactly what he is. He seems unwilling to come to grips with what has just happened. So he, he explains it away. He kind of comes up with excuses, even ludicrous ones. And in all these ways, Aaron and his idolatry leads God's people into destruction. Dear church, our idols never stay neatly wrapped up like a Christmas present below the tree. Our idols always spray out shrapnel that damage others around us. Israel, Aaron, third character is Yahweh. So to address this idolatry, as Yahweh prepares to live with his people in the tabernacle, we see him respond. And he's not taken aback, like, whoa, I didn't know this was happening. And he's not dismissive, like, wow, we can get through this. He is angry. There in verse 10, he is so angry, he's getting ready to go all flood on these people, okay? He says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. We see God's character revealed in Moses as well as Moses channels that very same wrath, righteous wrath. So in verse 19, Moses and his assistant Joshua descend the mountain and they, they hear in the distance the sound of singing. And, and then they get closer and they, they see a golden bull and they see their, their people worshiping this false god and dancing in front of it. And Moses, like God, has his anger burn hot. And he takes, in just this amazing picture, takes the tablets that had been written with the very finger of Yahweh, the self-existent one, showing the terms of the covenant and the relationship between God and his people and the play God will dwell with his people. And he takes these rock slabs and crushes them at the foot of the mountain, showing exactly what Israel had just done. Breaking the covenant. God's holiness, yet again, we see, will not be taken lightly by his people. And so Moses, as his representative, starts to mete out righteous punishment. And then there in verse 25, after Aaron's wimpy response, Moses sees the people are just out of their minds, going crazy. And he stands at the gate of the camp and he shouts, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Perhaps you've heard the, the legend from the Battle of the Alamo in 1836, or you've seen the old Davy Crockett movies, either way, where one of the soldiers, Colonel William Travis, sees the inevitability of defeat. He's heard from the opposing general that they will all be crushed, and so he calls his men within the Alamo to come to a decision. Will they leave and desert while there's still time? or stay and fight. This is legend, so we're not sure if it actually happened, but apparently Travis pulled out his sword and drew a line in the dirt and said, all who cross it will stay and die with me. It's an iconic story that's kind of given us, in part, that line, draw a line in the sand that we use as an idiom in our culture today. Maybe it goes back further, right? To Moses. He's kind of figuratively drawing a line in the sand, isn't he? With his voice, and he's saying, who's on the Lord's side? 
cross the line. You who have abandoned the covenant of Yahweh today, who will now stand on the Lord's side? You can't straddle the fence, people. You must choose. There in verse 26, Aaron and Moses' tribe, the tribe of Levi, crossed the line. And Moses gives them a horrendous command that they should take their swords and go to and fro in the camp and kill. Presumably those who will not recant, recant their idol worship. And 3,000 fall. For those of you who've read this passage growing up in, in your life, just see it afresh. Can you imagine the heart-wrenching scene here? Tribe against tribe. Brother against brother. This is the seriousness of idolatry. It must be stopped. We also see the seriousness of idolatry and the holiness of God back in verse 20. Where Moses, when he first comes down, makes the people drink water that has the idol ground up in it. Get this. Some think, and, and there's good reason to think, that the reason he did this was so that the people would literally digest and excrete the idol. Showing it to be nothing better than dung. But church, we don't only see God's wrath in this chapter. We see his abundant mercy, don't we? He doesn't eradicate his people. He doesn't eradicate them entirely as he threatens to do to Moses. So he tells Moses to stand back and let him destroy Israel as the flood had destroyed the earth back in Genesis. He says he'll make a new people out of Moses, kind of like Noah was a start over of the whole human race. But Moses intercedes for the people. And in verse 14, we read the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing. He showed mercy. He relented. He changed his position. He changed his plan. He put off the judgment Israel deserved and had mercy on them. Later in verse 35, he will send a plague that strikes the people. But even then, he doesn't wipe them out entirely. He remains faithful to his covenant. Now, perhaps you have another translation that says that God repented. Even that word relent is kind of worrisome, especially for a church that emphasizes God's sovereignty from Scripture, like we rightfully do. So perhaps you read that, that text in verse 14 and you think, wait, I thought God is immutable. I thought he's unchangeable. I thought he's sovereign. I thought he doesn't change his plans. I thought he doesn't change his mind. Well done. You've, you've done well. Yes, that's right. But do you know what God's plan was? His plan was to have mercy on his people. That was his plan all along. They deserved his wrath, but he sovereignly ordained that Moses would stand and faced with God's threatening wrath, stand in the gap and plead for the mercy of God's people. That was God's plan. Like a screenwriter sits down at his desk to write out the script of a movie and then shows in the storyline a mediator to turn back something bad, something damaging. God's love and justice are at full display here. 
Israel, Aaron, Yahweh, Moses. Moses is the last character in this drama to see this morning. He exercises God's authority by bringing punishment on the people, but look in verse 11. We've skipped over this part. Yahweh tells Moses, stand back, I'm going to destroy this people. What does Moses do? Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses comes to Yahweh and he says, remember your promise. Remember your character, how you are full of steadfast love what we'll see later in chapter 34, even more. He says, Yahweh, receive glory by being faithful to your covenant. Receive glory by having mercy. Push off your judgment. He intercedes on behalf of people who do not deserve it. And amazingly, the unchanging, self-existent God of the universe, Yahweh himself, hears and relents. The psalmist in Psalm 106 interprets this passage for us, and he says, Israel made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Kind of bringing out the just idiocy of this. And then he says, they forgot God. Therefore, God said he would destroy them Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. There in verse 30, after much of the narrative is complete, Moses again tells his people how horrendous their sin has been. But then he says, let me talk to God. Perhaps... I can make atonement for you. Unlike Aaron, Moses is a leader willing to fear God instead of the people. And so he goes up to God and he says, God, please have mercy on the people. Please have mercy on your people, even if it means blotting me out of your book, your your book of life. So kings back in that day probably had books written with their subjects. And so Moses is maybe kind of riffing off of that image, and he's saying, God, you have a book of your people. I'm willing for you to wipe me out if you can save your people. He's so desirous of God's mercy and grace that he's willing to die to make it happen. But in verse 33, Yahweh says, basically, your heart's in the right place, but you can't do that. Whoever sins needs to bear his sin himself. That's the way I work. 
Church, Moses, the mediator, interceded for God's people and turned away his wrath for a time. But God's wrath, brought on by sin's guilt, can never, ever just float away into the ether. Our sin, just like financial debt, needs to get resolved. Either the debtor will have to face the punishment and own up, or the lender will have to take the hit. Right? Even if a lender forgives a debt, somebody hurts. It's the lender. God's wrath cannot simmer forever below the surface. It must finally be leveled at sin. And it was. God planned for another mediator to come named Jesus. Jesus, unlike Moses, was able to stand in for God's people and atone for them fully. There was no perhaps in Jesus' sentence. He could atone. Jesus, unlike Moses, was sinless and therefore could be a substitute for sinners taking our death, rising again to give us life. This is what Jesus has done. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, your sin will result in your own destruction. Unless you trust in the mediator, the one who can atone, the one who has taken punishment for you. And dear church, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we get out of this passage It's not earth-shattering. It's just seeing more of the love of Jesus. This passage shows us more of the riches of the glory of the beauty of the gospel of Christ. See, you, Christian, are an idolater for whom Christ has implored God to have mercy and then has given himself to guarantee that mercy. You, Christian had forgotten God and he would have destroyed you had not Jesus, his chosen one, stood in the breach to turn away his wrath. Jesus was blotted out, so you will never be. Well, wait a second, my mistake. There is something about you that's going to be blotted out. Acts 3. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Church, your sin will never be visited on you because it was visited on Christ. Your guilt will never be on your shoulders because it was placed on Christ. Your debt will never need to be paid by you because it was paid by Christ. Nothing else is as glorious as that reality. Something that is all throughout Exodus 32. Nothing else deserves our worship. No idol has done this for us. Only this Redeemer. So church, as we think about Exodus 32 this week, let's glory not in the idols of our own making. Let's glory in the one and only God who sent his only son to take on our idol worship on himself and bear God's wrath so that forever we can say our only desire is Christ. Our only God is Christ. Our only Redeemer is Christ. We will glory in him, and we will glory in him alone.
Let's pray and then we'll sing that truth together. Lord, we confess that we have set up gods of our own making. I pray for every Christian here that you would bring by your spirit to mind things that we are placing above you in our love and worship. Do this out of mercy. Show us the starkness of our sin. And then show us the bigger, better reality of your gracious mercy in Christ. Come. Give our hearts and our vocal cords great joy as we glory in you alone and what you've done for us. And Jesus, Redeemer, we long to see you. Come quickly. Amen.